Please bow your heads with me and we'll pray. Dear Father in heaven, I want to ask that you be with us now. I want to ask that you fill this church with your presence. And Lord, please let my words be your words and everyone take away what you would have them take away from this. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us. Amen. He had just been kicked out of town yet again. This was beginning to be a bit of a habit, it seemed. He'd been leading a series of evangelistic meetings, you could say. And when he had been there, the people were eager to hear what he had to say. In fact, it was refreshing to witness how they searched the scriptures with eagerness and great attention. But here he was, outside of town, yet again. The town was Berea. See, the religious leaders from the town of Thessalonica, where he had just been kicked out of, had traveled the 45 miles to Berea and had kicked him out of that town as well. So here he was, yet again. Well, see, the thought of Thessalonica must have been a bittersweet memory to him. He had spent three weeks there, and for three Sabbaths in the book of Acts, chapter 17, Paul had opened the scriptures to them, telling them who the Messiah was and what his mission was. And a few of the people had been, a few of the Jews had been converted, and many of the Gentiles and many of the prominent women in the, the town had also been converted and now belonged to this new sect of Christians. But, see, Thessalonica was a rich city. It held a prominent place among the trade routes. It was wealthy. It was, it was important. But more than that, it held something known as free city status, which meant that Rome... Well, Rome had given them a break on taxes. And I mean, who doesn't want to break on taxes? And more than that, the Roman guards weren't present everywhere like they were in other cities. However, should there be a problem, that status could easily be revoked. The Roman soldiers would come back, taxes would increase, and a few other perks would be gone as well. So it was easy for the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, to get the crowd worked up. And so they did. They said, you know what, this group of people, they're going to cause problems. And they escorted them out of town. And from there, Paul had gone to Berea, and he preached, and they traveled there. They got rid of him from that town as well. And from there, he went on to Athens and then to Corinth. But this little church that he had spent such a short time with weighed heavy on his mind, it seems. And so he began to write 1 Thessalonians and then 2 Thessalonians sometime later. And in fact, this church was, was so much so on his mind that as he began to travel in the, the provinces of Macedonia and Ascaea, he writes in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, For the people of the regions of Macedonia and Achaia report about us what kind of welcome we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God. So basically, it would be like someone traveling down from Oshawa and a few of you are versed in the Old Testament. So a few of you over here are versed in the Old Testament. The rest of you know nothing. So this preacher comes from Oshawa, and he begins to preach for three Sabbaths. You're converted. The rest of you who knew nothing are also converted. So much so that when he's kicked out of town and moves on, because of your prominent position with, you know, you've got the railroad track there, you've got the 401, you're in such a prominent place, that when this same preacher from Oshawa goes to, say, Toronto or northern Ontario, he hears about 
from these people how you treated him. That's how this little church of, Thessal- of Thessalonica was on fire. They sent out missionaries, so to speak, and people were converted, so much so that Paul knew how he was treated in Thessal- Thessalonica just by meeting other people. What caused this little church to be so active? What was the driving force behind them? And can we apply this secret to our church today? I suppose an important question to ask here is, why is it important to have an active church? Why is it important to have an active church? If the church, Belleville Church, was to shut its doors tomorrow, would those of us in the congregation simply find another church or would we miss it? More importantly, would the community miss us? Would the community miss our presence? I think they would. I think they'd miss the nursing home visits. I think they'd miss the health seminars I've heard about. I think they would miss the various other, the Citrus Program, and the other things I've also heard that this church is actively doing in the community. Now, Paul, he'd written about three concepts before, faith, hope, and love. And he writes in 1 Thessalonians, and I want you all to turn there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verses 2 through 4. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers constantly, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll stop there. So what this church had was something known as a triad of activity. They had, as I just said, a work of faith, a labor of love, and a steadfastness in hope. And it made an impression on Paul, so much so, that he said he was constantly remembering and praying for this church because he had heard that this is what they had. And if you read on, this church, it wasn't even so much what they said as much as what they did that was the driving force that made them so active. And so, I want us today to explore and figure out how we can add and maintain these same principles, this triad of activity, this steadfastness of hope, this work of faith and the labor of love. And if we apply it, let's see what our church can do. And maybe we can have people actually want to join our churches. So the first one, a work of faith. So to illustrate this point, I want to introduce you to two individuals. The first is faith, and the other is works. And one day Faith is out taking a walk. And as Faith is walking down the road, she stumbles upon a man that's cold. His clothes are hanging to his skin. He's hungry. He's frail. And she walks up to him and she says, Go in peace. Eat your fill and keep warm. And then she walks on. Well, her words are great words, but they seem to to lack some substance. And as the book of James 2, verse 17 says, if you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Now works come along. Works alone has no time for fairy tales like faith does. And so works feels the only way to obtain happiness here or to earn salvation is to work for it, just as his name implies. He helps the homeless, he feeds the hungry, he clothes the naked, 
But he lacks what faith can give people, and that is hope beyond today. But if faith and work work together, they can not only help people with the needs of right now, but they can also offer them something more. The SDA Bible commentary states it well when it says, Faith without works is merely an intellectual conviction that certain doctrines are true. The mind is convinced because of the overwhelming evidence from God's word, but the heart remains cold and unconverted. Now there's an important question that must be asked here, and that is, how can the two relate safely? And the reason that I bring that even up is because sometimes we get to the point in our religion where we think that we can start working for our salvation. So it might be the way we dress or the food that we eat, and we become obsessed with these as though that is what is going to save us. And that's where works can become a dangerous concept. And so we need to remember that the faith must be established first, so that relationship with Christ. As the book of Hebrews says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is believing in God, in laying down that relationship, and from that relationship, our works come out. So an important question, what exactly are works then? Works are not crawling upstairs on your knees, as Martin Luther tried, but rather, as Matthew 25 points out, it's feeding the hungry. It's visiting those who don't have anybody to visit with, visiting the sick, going to nursing homes, helping people, and that flows from our faith. Now, what is the result of a work of faith, though? And this brings us to our second point, our labor of love. See, we believe in Jesus. We have that faith. And that faith results in works. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, as the Bible says in Matthew 5.16. And your works don't save you because Jesus saves us, right? He already took that, took care of all that. So our relationship with Jesus and our works are a reflection, rather, of God's love. Faith reap loves, and love reaps faith. The two are inseparable. So another way of stating that a Christian that does not love is not a Christian, but merely someone with a knowledge of religion. So what does it mean to love? More specifically, to have a labor of love, as Paul says the Church of Thessalonica has. Now, the Apostle John, we'll jump to him for a second. He was obsessed with this concept of love. And so three times, or many more times than that, in 1 John, he writes about this concept of love. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, 1 John 4, 7. Again, God God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them, 1 John 4, 16. And it continues throughout the book. He's obsessed. However... How many of you remember that first love that you had when you were either a child or a teenager? And you thought that you were absolutely in love and that love would never end, but it did. That's a different sort of love. So what the Apostle John and what the book of Thessalonians is saying is it's an agape love. An agape love. And this is a different sort of love. It's an everlasting love. So my grandpa was in World War II. He served as a medic. And so as kids, we would sit around him and we would ask him to tell stories. And I remember one story that he loved to tell. And it was about a time, he said it was raining. And so 
him and a few guys that were with him, they decided they needed to find some shelter. And there just happened to be, I'm not sure, I can't remember if it was a barn or a shed, and they went into it. And he said the first thing that you always did when you walked into a building was you searched that building out to make sure that there wasn't some sort of a bomb or something that wasn't detonated yet. So they began searching around. And they heard a call from the back. And the guy said, hey, come back here. There's something here. So they all ran, and they looked, and there was a bomb that had not yet exploded. So they figured they had to make sure that, you know, they would be safe, and so they began to take this bomb apart. And as they did, sand came out of it. And with the sand, a note written in German. And it basically was wishing them all the best, the Allies all the best. And I remember at this point in the story, my grandpa would have tears running down his face as he would look at us kids and he would say, this is real agape love. That someone would give up their life for someone else that they did not even know. That is agape love, he would say. It's a love much deeper than the superficial love that we hear about so often in our world today. Would we as Christians risk our lives for someone we didn't know? Would we risk our lives for, say, the church members who have upset us or a family member who has upset us? Would we risk our lives for them? Do we love with an agape love as a church? Because if we become a church that is loving, we will also become a church that will grow. However, there's one other aspect to agape love that a lot of people tend to push aside. And in today's world, we see and we hear the words love a lot. Do we not? We have to love, love, love. And by loving, a lot of times it also means accepting any and every kind of behavior. And as Christians, this can be confusing. How do we have morals and yet accept today's world and today's version of love? Agape love has an aspect of rebuke or discipline to it. So not only is it an everlasting love, one that will give one's life for someone else, but there's also that aspect of discipline or rebuke, much like a parent has for a child. For example, I tell my kids, they're two and three, and they're always getting into mischief. And so you constantly are saying to them, you know, don't do this or don't do that, it seems. And it's not that I'm doing that because I don't like them. I love them, and that is why I discipline or I ask them to listen to me. And I do this hoping that, let's say, one day I was walking in a parking lot and a car was coming, and if I say, stop, I hope that that child will stop and listen to me and trust me because I see an element of danger that they may not see. And this is what God does with us when he gives us the Ten Commandments. He says, here's a bunch of rules. And we say, we don't want to follow those rules. And he says, I'm doing it because I love you. If you follow my rules, I promise, they'll be good things. So there's that aspect of agape love that also involves trust. Rebuke, discipline, and giving of one's life. It's a complicated love, but it's a very deep love. So God gives us rules because he loves us and he wants what's best for us. And so agape love has a component of laying one's life down for someone, whether they listen or not. And it also has an element of trust and obeying. However, many Christians, on the other hand, sometimes take it too far, where we become slightly judgmental. So I look at so-and-so and I say, you know what? They're not living the way I like. 
And so then we start looking at them and we say, okay, I need to talk to them, but I'm doing it because I either want to elevate myself as better than them or I'm doing it just to put them down. But we need to remember that rebuke, discipline, all that sort of stuff should be done because we love somebody. So when we have that love and that respect for people, that is the driving force. And that's why we do what we do. What about people who are difficult to love? What about someone who's insulted us? What if they're living a lifestyle that we don't like? Do we have to love them? I suppose this is why it's a labor of love. That love has to flow from God and our relationship with God, and then it flows out of us. And we love those who are difficult because God loves us, despite how difficult I'm sure we can be to God. We love those who have insulted us because we at times have insulted God. We love those who aren't living the way we think they should because at some time in our life we have lived the way that probably wasn't the best either. We love because he first loved us. And we do all this. We have this work of faith and this labor of love because we have a steadfastness in hope or as the New King James Version says, a patience in hope. And what an appropriate word, a patience in hope. And this is the driving force of why we do what we do. This is what our faith is grounded in and where our love flows out of. We have this hope that burns within our hearts. I see you guys sing it as well after service, and I know in Kingston they do as well. We have this hope, hope in the coming of our Lord, as the hymn says. So when Paul would preach to people, Acts 17 verse 3 says, he explained and he proved that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer, to rise from the dead. So Paul preached, and he told people what Jesus had done. And more than that, he would also preach and say what Christ was doing for him. And that's an important element as well. How is God working in our lives? Because if we have that work of faith and that relationship with Christ, and we have that labor of love, we can share with other people how God is working through us as well. And that's a very important thing, our testimony. Paul had every reason to say forget it. He was beaten up. He was driven from town to town. And when he went to Athens, he had people arguing with him. He had every reason to say, you know what, forget this. I'll just go make tents. It's easier. They don't argue back. But he didn't. And why didn't he? Because he had a faith and a hope in something greater. If you take all the verses in the New Testament, one in 13 verses talk of the, new t- of the uh, second coming. One in 13 verses talk of the second coming. This was a huge hope for the early church. This was their driving force. They took the Great Commission to be their motto, and they applied it. What is our hope grounded in today? Is it grounded in our job? Is it grounded in, say, getting rich or trying to live a disease-free life? Which, you know, all these things aren't necessarily bad things. But if that is what our hope is grounded in, we're going to be sorely disappointed when we discover that riches fade, our health will eventually fade. Eventually, things are going to pass away in this earth. But what if our hope is grounded in Christ and what he did for us? What if it's grounded in the fact that we have something great to look forward to? We have the opportunity to see loved ones again. We have the hope of not being sick again. More importantly, we have the hope 
of one day seeing the one who uh, our hope is based on. We should be excited and working because we have this awesome hope. And if the early church was so focused on this hope on the second coming of Christ, how much more so today should we be? And I know sometimes it's easy to say, well, you know, it's been 2,000 years. It's getting a little embarrassing now. But I believe that we are very, very, very close to that. So how much more so should that be our driving force today? We have a hope, and it's about to come to fruition. And this hope is what drives our work of faith and our labor of love. So two individuals went for a walk one day. Their names were Faith and the other was Work. And no matter what, the two always went together. And when they saw a situation where somebody needed help, Faith would assess the situation based on what she knew in the Bible and how Jesus would handle the situation. And Works would put that into practice. So they would feed the hungry, they would clothe those who were naked, they would visit those who didn't have anyone to visit them. And they would do all this because of the faith that drove them, because of their relationship with God. And not only that, but once people were ready, they had something more to offer them than just you know, stuff that's going to pass away here on this earth. They had a hope in something that was about to happen. When faith and works went to church or met someone unreasonable or hard to like or they sat through a board meeting where they just wanted to bash their head against the wall and people weren't listening to them, they could love those people despite it because that love flowed from God and that relationship and that faith that they'd already established. However, they knew that God's commandments were important and that they should be kept. And they did so because of the relationship with God. Not because they had to. And lastly, faith and works, they knew that their relationship was grounded and pushed and driven on by a hope that was greater than this earth. And so when all seems lost, when a loved one dies or someone becomes sick, there was that hope driving them on to continue even when all seemed lost. It sounds like a fanciful tale, but it can and it will happen to all willing to work at it. And I love how Paul, when he writes this, he doesn't just say faith, hope, and love, but he says a work of faith, a labor of love, and a steadfastness or a patience of hope. Those are action words. Labor, working, steadfastness, or patience. In other words, it's not necessarily easy to be a Christian. It's not necessarily easy to believe in a God who we can't see and to believe and have a hope in something that makes us look slightly crazy. It's not easy to do this, but I promise you that the best things in life are not easy. They must be worked at. It's also no mistake that Paul says that he prays constantly for the Thessalonians. We, as a church, need to be a praying church, praying for one another constantly. What do we want the community to remember about us? What do we want our members to remember about us as a church? What do we want them to value in us? It's an important question to ask. And I believe that if we have that work of faith, the labor of love and the steadfastness of hope that drives the other two, we will become a church that grows as people see something that they want to join and they can be actively involved in. So I encourage you all 
to work at your faith, as I'm sure we all are doing. Put that faith into action. Labor in love, which means loving sometimes those that aren't necessarily the easiest people to love. And lastly, hold fast to that hope and never let it go. Amen.